Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. Hebrews. So, um, chapter 6, very, very challenging passage. Probably not going to say everything I wanted to say, needed to say. Might have to do a little more on this later. But I'm going to have to do a brief review in order to set the stage for this week's sermon. So we actually got to start reading in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, to build up to these statements we want to cover today. So, going back, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, concerning him, Jesus, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have been come to need milk and not solid food. Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What basically the author is saying, and we've preached two sermons on that passage, is let's get off the milk and let's get into the meat. Let's digest the facts about Jesus, really believe the gospel, move on in faith, Press on into spiritual maturity. Believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter gave this epic speech to the nation of Israel in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's read this speech. This really hit it home and, and kind of nailed the whole thing. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, with wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man delivered over to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men, put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. More so, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised him up to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which is both you see and hear it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself saying, the Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were all pierced to their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sins, your murdering crucifixion of the Messiah. Repent of your unbelief in the plans of God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the first step for a new believer in Jesus to take. Hear the message. It convicts you. You repent of your sins, confess your belief, your faith in Jesus, and then you get baptized. And then you keep learning and growing in your faith, learning what God has said, learning how it applies to your everyday life, and then making the changes that you need to make. We try to help with that. We have class 101, where we teach people the basic doctrines and teachings, and then we recommend that people uh, become members of Faith Bible Church, make a commitment to attend regularly and become active and involved in the church, serving and supporting the ministries of the church. Maybe even in time, taking on a leadership role, a teaching role. Maybe even some people would advance to full-time Christian ministry. Greg started out attending Faith Bible Church. He was just a new convert. He was just a, a baby Christian. He uh, progressed to help with the youth group. That made sense because he was a high school teacher at the time. And uh, he advanced to being a youth leader. And then we turned him into the youth leader. We hired him on full-time as the Christian education director. And then uh, he got a degree in theology. And we ordained him, changed his title to assistant pastor, and now is an elder. That's how someone can press on into Christian maturity. Now, not everyone can be in full-time ministry, and obviously we can't all, you know, stand up here and preach, but we all have gifts that we can use to serve the church and build the kingdom. We teach you what your spiritual gifts are in our 301 class, and that is a class that you'll hear coming your way, so you should take that class and learn what my spiritual gifts are and how I can serve. But on the other hand, there are other people who do just the opposite. They don't press on into maturity. Matter of fact, they back away from their original steps of faith. They backtrack. And that's who the author is dealing with here in chapter 6. And to them, he gives a frightening warning. And here it is. Hebrews chapter 6, now verse 4. 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So the question this morning is, what makes repentance impossible? Impossible. Antidinatos is the Greek word. Without strength, impotent, powerless, unable to be done. The root word is dinotos, 
which means able, powerful, mighty, strong. It's where we get our English word, dino, dynamite, right? One thing Ileana and I have done in the past, and we've always done since we've been married, is we like to drive around and we just like to look at properties and imagine the possibilities. What if we lived here? What would we do with this space? How could we develop it? Would this work for our family? We always like to imagine the possibilities. And that's something that I think most humans don't like to be told, that something is impossible. If a person has a vision or an idea, a dream, they do not want to hear, that's impossible. It's, an, it's impossible to sail around the world. It's impossible to dive to the bottom of the ocean. It's impossible for men to fly. It's impossible to travel into outer space. If you say something's impossible, someone's going to say, oh yeah, and step up to the challenge to prove the impossible is possible because we love to imagine the possibilities. With that being said, I think that's partially why this passage is so very controversial, because he says it is impossible. And that sounds so final. The door is shut. No hope or potential. Also, we don't like the sound of it because of the subject matter. The author's not talking about sailing or diving or flying. No, he's talking about who can and who cannot repent and receive forgiveness from their sins who can and who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The author says it is impossible to renew someone again to repentance. And then he uses five clauses to describe this person, which we need to break down in order to properly identify who this someone is. But the act of trusting in Jesus and repenting of sins is the most important decision a person will ever make because the consequences are so specific and they're so final. Because once your life is over, there's no do-overs. There's no mulligans. When we start talking about one's eternal destiny and what God's will or what God will not permit and that some person could be disqualified from faith that is impossible to, for someone to repent of their sins, man, that's a scary thought. And then on top of that, another reason why people don't like this passage, because when you read it, it seems to communicate that someone who turns from faith in Jesus, well, they can't come back. And, and when you have loved ones and children that we have raised up to trust in Jesus, but they're not currently practicing their faith or they're questioning the doctrines or they, at this present time, they say, I don't believe the Bible, then this passage really seems to doom them. So this is one of the hardest passages to stomach. And since it is so impalatable, many Bible scholars look, work long and hard to come up with another way to take it. Or many people just won't touch it and just won't preach it. Leave it alone. It's just, you know, don't study Hebrews. Pretend that's not there. What a lovely option churches have, eh? That they could just say, eh, you don't really we want to cover these verses. Let's, let's just avoid that and We'll pick some, some topics, people like, you know, let's stick with the milk. Who wants to hear about the love of God and the promised blessings? Ooh, let's hear more about those. Those are tasty milkshakes. And that's going to be my new expression for the seeker-sensitive topical preaching that avoids anything controversial. Those kind of churches 
serve a lot of tasty milkshakes. Ah, stupid Pastor Rob and his expository preaching style. And now we have to chew big, tough, meaty pieces of scripture that's hard to digest. Doesn't he know I'm vegan? <laughs> I'm on a plant-based diet up here. I've developed knowledge and tolerance. So the author gives us an elaborate description of someone. And the only way to interpret this passage accurately is we need to look at the individual Greek words and let the definitions speak for themselves. And then we need to observe how the author of Hebrews and the other authors of scriptures use those terms in other passages. And then we got to remain consistent in our interpretations. So here's the description. Write these five down. Enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. A lot of tasting. Taste tests going on. So, starting off with enlightened. The author of Hebrews used this word in chapter 10. If you flip over two pages to chapter 10 and you go down to verse 32, the author says to his audience, who's the same audience in chapter 6 as in chapter 10, he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. So in the context, he's using the word enlightened to describe someone who is believed in Jesus. Photizo is the Greek word. It means to give light, to shine, illuminate, used to enlighten spiritually, to infuse and instill with the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. That's how it's used in Scripture, exactly how John used it in John chapter 1, verse 1. Flip over there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Apart from Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. He continues on and talks about that light. Verse number nine. There was a true light which comes into the world, enlightening every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those in who were his own and they did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of the blood or the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. And then that statement in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld the glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's how John uses the term enlightens the lights. And that's also how Paul uses that term in Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease from giving thanks to you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of him. I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of the calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. So the author of Hebrews uses enlightened to 
refer to believers. So did John in his description of Jesus. And so does Paul here in Ephesians talk about their being enlightened. So maybe enlightened is talking about people who believe in Jesus. That's the first one. Second is tasted. They tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted is guo, is the Greek word. It means to experience, to eat, to take nourishment. We see the author of Hebrews used it in this passage. Many sermons ago, we preached this. We do, we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because he's suffering death, crowned with glory and honor. By the way, my good song choice fit right in with that passage. From glory to glory, crowning glory to glory. So that by the grace of God, he might what? Taste death for everyone. So when Jesus tastes death, that means he what? He nibbled on it. No, he what? He died. He experienced death. So taste in that sense is he's experiencing something. So they have experienced, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Iporenos, things that exist in heaven, things from God is what that means. So the author consistently uses that term heavenly to modify anything coming from God several times in this book. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partaking of a heavenly calling. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And then again in chapter 9, therefore it is necessary for the copies of the things that in the heavens to be cleansed with these things, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the author doesn't say what the heavenly gift is here in Hebrews chapter 6 or in the book of Hebrews, but we do have other New Testament authors that use the phrase gift and they tell us what they mean by heavenly gift. Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. By God being rich in his mercy because of his great love, which, which he loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the age to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is the... That's the gift. That's the heavenly gift. And not to be outdone, Romans chapter 5, once again, Paul, quoting Paul, but the gracious gift, oh, talking specifically about the gift, not like the offense, for if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, here's the gift, Jesus Christ overflowed to the many, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the one, on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundant gift of grace, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one. And there's the one. What's the gift? Jesus Christ. Pretty obvious that the heavenly gift, according to the New Testament authors, is Jesus. So you tasted Jesus, that's what the heavenly gift is. Partaking, knowing of Jesus. Third phrase, partakers of the Holy Spirit. And that Greek word there for partakers, sharing, is metachos. He uses that word a couple of times. If you flip back to chapter 3, starts... 
chapter 3 with that word. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And then again, in, down to verse 14 of the same chapter, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. So when the author uses the word partakers to describe the audience, he doesn't mean a loose affiliation or an acquaintance. Partakers is a serious bond. It's a full-on commitment, identifying who they are. If I told you I'm partaking in the Olympics, you would say, well, I mean, that implies a very high level of skill and expertise. And thus, a high level of commitment is necessary to even achieve the level of partaking. Probably I won't win any medals, but you know, just the fact that you are partaking, the fact that you even made the Olympics, well, that's, uh, that's quite something. So partaking of the Holy Spirit, by the way, who's the Holy Spirit? God. God, the Holy Spirit, is actively sharing something with me. Well, that's a very serious level of commitment for that to be happening, don't you think? The Bible teaches us when the individual accepts Christ as personal Savior, the Holy Spirit gives the believer the life of God, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells him spiritually. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So, tasting the Holy Spirit, partaking of the Holy Spirit. And then two more, tasted the good word of God. So again, the whole idea of tasting, experiencing, not just licking. Jesus didn't just lick death. He went through the whole thing. And so the word of God, as we already read in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So who's the word? Jesus is the word. If I've tasted the good word of God, I've learned who Jesus is. I've experienced the promises. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So tasting and then more tasting. Tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. What's that? What's the age to come? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. The age that is to come is Jesus' eternal kingdom. He promised he's coming back again. He promised a millennial kingdom. And we get to taste that. When? When do we get a taste of that? Well, right now. When we gather together in unity, as Paul said, there is one body and one spirit. You are called by one hope you are calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in you all. We get to taste the age to come, God being with us on earth, when we participate with brothers and sisters in Christ in building the kingdom of God when we glorify his name, when we will be worshiping God for all of eternity. And what we do here on Sunday mornings together, that's just a taste, just a sampling of that. And if you don't like being in church and being with Christians and praising Jesus, then you're really not going to like the age to come. You know? You're not going to like heaven, I'm just saying. You might want to think about your attitude about people of God because they make up the kingdom. This is the kingdom. 
Okay, so someone who has been, what are they? Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, been a partaker of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. There is no way I can string all five of those clauses together and conclude that that's describing someone who is an unbeliever. That would be completely contrary to how all of the New Testament writers use those various statements individually, and then you pack them all together. And yet, many Bible scholars, like John MacArthur, who I have great respect for, and I have many of his books in my office, he says the person described in Hebrews chapter 6 is not a Christian. has to be some other category. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to the unsaved who have heard and acknowledged the word, but they are hesitated to embrace Jesus. So that is how he and other interpreters, that's how other, other people interpret who someone is. Someone who is enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, been a particular Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of this age is simply someone who heard the truth, acknowledged it, but has hesitated to embrace it? That doesn't sound like an honest, thorough interpretation to me. Sounds more like that's what you want the words to mean, but that's not actually what it says and how they are used. And the reason why John MacArthur and many others prefer that interpretation is because of the doctrine of eternal security. Meaning once you believed in Jesus, you're in. You're a child of God and you can never unbelieve and you can never get out of that family. Well, where does that idea come from? Well, there's a couple of passages. John chapter 10, and these are the ones MacArthur quoted in the article I was reading of him this week. John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who gives me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. My father and I are one, right? We love that Trinity explanation. And I love that verse. But doesn't this, this phrase right here, my sheep listen to my voice and they what? Follow me. So doesn't listen and follow imply some ongoing action there? Isn't that something that sheep need to be doing and keep doing? Sounds like a condition. Okay. Uh, MacArthur also quotes Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation, trouble, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerous Lord, just as is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to the slaughter. But in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, things present, things that come, powers, heights, depth, anything created can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, I love that passage. That's a great passage. But we have to apply it to the context in which it is spoken. Romans was written to people who were believers and were eager to remain so, but they are concerned about their own failures and shortcomings to live a perfect life, that that might separate them from God. And Paul's telling them to be assured in their justification. Paul's not talking to people in Romans who are saying, I thought I believed in Jesus. I thought he was the way. But upon further reflection, I no longer agree with that message. 
The context of Hebrews 6 is different than the context of Romans chapter 8. Brother John MacArthur also cites 1 Peter chapter 1, this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, but once again, context. Keep reading. Don't stop there, John. Keep reading. Verse number six. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by many trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perished through the tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, what are they? You Love him, and though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and with full glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The people Peter is talking to love Jesus, and they believe in Jesus. I don't question that people who profess their faith in Jesus will not lose their salvation. I wholeheartedly believe that. Even if they sin, even if they do horrible things. No, God's love and grace and his faithfulness to me is greater, greater than me. But if I say, I deny Jesus is God, I reject this teaching, I don't believe that basic thing about who Jesus is. Well, too bad. You, when you were six years old, you, you prayed that prayer of faith. You said those magic words, so you're in, buddy. And you're never getting out, no matter what you believe in your heart or confess with your mouth. You're stuck in the kingdom. The context of Hebrews is very specific. Jews who won't move on from their Judaism. They don't think Jesus is what's going to save them. They still need the law of Moses and the sacrifices and the temple, and they won't leave that to trust in Jesus the Messiah. And what makes repentance impossible for someone who does that? Chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God, laying again a foundation of repentance. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our faith. But let's pull that up and let's lay again another foundation of repentance, temple sacrifices and ritual washings. Don't take chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 out of the context of what the author is talking about and who he is talking to. Someone who received the information about Jesus, they believed it, but then they said, wait a minute, I'm not happy with this foundation. Let's tear that up and lay again the old Moses system. If they are convinced of that system, the author says they have fallen away. They have piptosed, is the Greek word, falling from a higher place to be cast down. 
The whole point the author is making in this book is Jesus is better, greater. He's at the top. Don't leave him for something lesser, lower, and worse. Don't fall from Jesus back to an ineffective system. Piptos, the same Greek word Jesus used in Luke chapter 11, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's the same word, falling from an exalted place down. It's the same word the author used in chapter 4, verse number 1 and 2, let us fear if, while a promise remains to enter his rest, any of when you may Come short of it, fall from it, is what he says. For indeed, we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united with faith by those who heard. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter the rest so that no one will piptoast, no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And it's similar to what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. I know we haven't learned Galatians yet. We'll get to Galatians someday. I don't know when. But Galatians chapter 5. Look at this verse. Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, look, I, Paul, tell you that if you have yourself circumcised, okay, we're talking about some really weird stuff here, right? You get yourself circumcised. Kids don't know what that is. Talk to your mom. Sorry, I'm not explaining that right now. Christ will have no benefit of you. And I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You have been severed. Watch how he uses his theme. Severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen, piptos from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of the righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, but faith through works through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion didn't come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear the punishment, whoever he is. But as for me, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I so persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross have been eliminated. I wish that those who are troubling you would even emasculate themselves. Fallen from grace, severed from Christ. That's how damning that teaching is, that you need the Old Testament law, that you need the circumcision. That's teaching another way to God apart from trusting in Jesus. And Paul's so upset about what he, that, he says, whoever's teaching that, I wish they just cut their manhood off. What? He said that? Ooh, this is so heavy. Really would like a tasty milkshake right about now. Why would Paul wish someone would hurt himself badly? They cut their own testicles off because that's what he means. Remember that servant? Yeah, we'll leave that one alone. Because that's how serious this issue is. If you fall from Jesus, if you stop believing in Jesus to save you and you're trusting in something else, you are doomed, man. If they fall, it is impossible again to renew them to repentance. That's why this warning is so sharp and so severe. This is what is at stake when you fall from Jesus and you lay another foundation of repentance. If your foundation of repentance is dead works, then you're never going to repent properly. You're never going to know true repentance. Thus, repentance is impossible. 
What makes repentance impossible? Falling away from Jesus, tearing up his work as the foundation of repentance and laying another one, a different one, and that foundation of repentance is the Old Testament laws. Verse 6, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God, putting him to open shame. What does that mean? Crucifying him again? Well, think about it for a moment. In the context of the audience, Jesus shows up to Jerusalem on the donkey, right? And the high priest and the Pharisees were intimidated by him. We learned this in Luke, right? They were scared and they were angry that all the people were learning about God from Jesus and they were losing their influence. And when the religious leaders of Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they had him crucified in order to protect themselves and keep their positions of power. They killed him. So that's what I think the author is saying. When you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you are very much acting like the high priest. You crucify him. You're concluding Jesus is dead to me. You destroy his foundation of repentance and you lay your own. So what Peter in Acts preached is what the Holy Spirit convicted the people of. That's why I read that passage. You people crucified the Messiah. You need to repent of that. And when you choose Moses over Jesus, you fall from that high place. Basically, in your heart, in your mind, you've done that very same thing. You've crucified him again. So when we as Christians preach Jesus crucified, when we do this, and we look to the cross, we're not, we're not saying, oh yeah, I align with the high priest. We're glad they killed Jesus. Yeah, we celebrate the cross because we wanted Jesus dead and out of here. No, no. Our focus on the cross is for the intent of declaring, we believe in you, Jesus. We believe that you died uh, for our sins. We stand amazed and at awe of that sacrifice. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore that burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. Our emphasis on the cross is to proclaim what we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit, and he's given us new life. Oh, stand on your feet with me, Faith Bible Church, and declare with me what you believe. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection, and he's coming back. He's what? He's coming back again. Never reject, never deny, never fall away from this. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And someone here today, maybe someone right here right now needs to receive and declare that. So every head bow and every eye closed. And let us take a moment for someone to pray, to confess Jesus for the first time. Or to come back again, say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you are the gift of God who saves me from my sins. You died. You rose again. Please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please receive me as your child. Lord, we would pray that someone today 
would make that declaration in their heart. Someone today would receive you, receive that gift, receive the Holy Spirit, and to know that freedom that we have in Christ, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. May each and every one be a child of God, a brother and sister, a son and daughter. And may we own that today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.